Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. First Corinthians 11, Paul is continuing his um, discussion of the things they asked him about. All right. And um, verse two, and I praise you, brethren, and remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. The head of the Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head, un- head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man is not made is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this woman reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from the man, even so man also comes through woman, but women, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Head coverings. That's one of the ugly passages nobody wants to talk about. And of course, you have all kinds of different viewpoints on this. Um, some churches, for example, you know, a woman, she goes into the church and she doesn't have a little doily or a little dinghy on her head. You know, they'll boot her out. You know, they don't want her to come into the church because they say she's violating this particular um, commandment here. And the way to understand this is you got to go back and you got to find out, well, here, well, let me ask you this. Let's, let's, let me probe you on this. If you're going to interpret this passage, what do you need to do? If you're going to understand what Paul's talking about, what do you need to do? What's the first thing you need to do? Cultural. You need to go back. You need to examine. Why is he? Why did he ask this? Why? Why is he writing this? Right? Mm-hmm. What's What's behind it? This is relatable to what they. Well, it's kind of like robes back in the day. Well, it's 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 a whatever this is, it's an issue they were facing, right? Mm-hmm. So what you would need to do is you would maybe need to open up some commentaries or some historical reference books or or try to get back, try to understand, okay, what is going on in this culture at this time in Corinth that would precipitate Paul writing this passage? All right. And if you do that, you find out that back then, just as today, they had a little bit of a women's liberation movement go on in Corinth. Um, now, I know this, this is one of those things where if you, you step in this too hard, you, you never get out of this stuff. It's like picking up a tar baby, you know, you can't get rid of it. But um, one of the things that the scripture teaches very clearly, this goes back to the role of men and women, the role of women in the church, all of that. The Bible teaches very clearly that there's a difference in role between men and women. R-O-L-E, role. That's the difference. It does not teach that there's a a spiritual difference in terms of privilege. 
right? Um, as far as God is concerned, there's neither. Remember that verse in, in Galatians three twenty-eight, right? There's neither male nor free, female, bond nor free. Okay, um, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond nor free in Christ. Okay, what do you think Paul's trying to get at there in Galatians chapter three? What's the point that he's trying to make? Well, if you look at the context, he's trying to say that in the body of Christ, there is no, as far as God's concerned, any difference between a Jew or a Gentile. So national distinctives mean nothing to God, right? And see, there's neither, there's no difference between male nor female. Now, if you study the Greek text of that verse, male nor female is only used there. And it's referring to maleness, femaleness. It's referring to the quality of gender. All right. So what God is saying is when it comes to spiritual privilege, this is the point. Spiritual privilege, not role, spiritual privilege. There's no ethnic distinction, right? Ethnic, as far as God's concerned, he doesn't care whether you're Greek, Jew. It's irrelevant to him. Um, God does not give spiritual privilege based on your nationality. All right. And God says there is neither any, as far as spiritual privilege go, there is no gender distinctions. God doesn't care whether you're a man or a woman. It's irrelevant. And there's no such thing as slave or free, so there is no economic distinction between people. God has no respect to person. God doesn't care necessarily what you do for a living, what your, what your sex is, or what ethnicity you are. God's... When it comes to spiritual privilege, all are equal. God saves men and women equally. You have same spiritual privilege. You have the same um, relationship to God. Um, one's not more spiritual than the other, necessarily. We all have the same spiritual privilege. But God has designed in human society institutions, has he not? What institutions is God designed? Government. Huh? Government. Well, there's the, the, the institution of government, right? What else? There's two more. Family, Family the home, and what else? Church. The church, okay? These are basically three institutions that God has designed within human society. These are structural components. These are building blocks of society, okay? And God has designed from the beginning... In society, in regards to the family, at least, who is the head? The man is the head. Why? He's smarter? Good night. No. Most of the time he's dumber, right? It's not because he's smarter, right? Huh? He was created first. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Who was In Genesis 2, who was created first? Adam was created first, then Eve. Was Adam made for Eve? No. no. Eve was made for Adam as a helpmeet, a complementary individual. It's complementary. But Adam was the head of the family. How do you know that? How do you know Adam was the head? How could you prove that Adam was the responsible head of the family? Huh? Yeah. And how else do you know from Genesis? Pardon? Mm -hmm. 
Well, this is after the fall. He was to earn his living by the sweat of the brow, right? But before the fall, before, you know, in that whole structure of the fall, how would you know if you didn't know any better? How would you know that man was the response, the male was the responsible party? Put him in charge of everything in here, including naming all the animals. He did that. I'm talking about the home. God gave him the instructions. He spoke to him. Well, God spoke to both of them. You're missing the you're missing the very obvious. It's an this is this is called observation. Observe. When did the human race plunge into sin? When Adam ate. Who ate first? Who ate first? No. Eve ate first. And she gave it to her husband, and he did eat. Remember? When Eve ate, what happened to the human race? Nothing. From the text, nothing, right? But when Adam ate, what happened? Then it says, and then the eyes of both of them were open. They knew good and evil. God holds the man responsible. God created the man first, then the woman. Now that's God's created order. That's the way God created it. And God ordained throughout human history, the man is the head of the home. That's his responsibility. And when God instituted the church or in the Old Testament, the, the sacrificial system, the, the religious system, who did he ordain? What gender did he ordain as the leader? The man. That's God's ordained role. <laughs> She's trying to talk, but she can't. All right. Now, look, that's just what this that's what the Bible is saying. I mean, that's just the way it is. Now, you want to go back. and Now, let, let me throw some things out here to to to, to get your juices flowing on this. Well, some of your Jews is flying, I guess, at least. There are people that say, well, that's fine and dandy. But, you know, in Christ, in, since since we're saved now, once we're saved, then all of that, that gender distinctives, you know, it, it doesn't matter anymore because we're equal in Christ. And they try to use the Galatians 3.28 verse to say, well, see, it says there we're equal in Christ. And the answer is yes and no. Yes, you're equal in Christ in the sense of spiritual privilege. No in the sense of role, R-O-L-E. Your roles are different. God has ordained differing roles for men and women. All right? And God has ordained that within the church and within the home, the man is the responsible one. He holds him responsible for the home and responsible for the church. Man is the head. Um, now, we could spend weeks talking about this particular passage here. On this, because what some people try to do is they try to say, let me let me give you some. Not, not only you gotta go here, but you gotta go to First Timothy chapter two, your favorite passage. All right, where it talks about I do not allow a woman to teach or usurp authority, but to be in submission. Okay, in what sense is she to be in submissive submission? Well, in the teaching ministry of the church, when the church gathers together to teach or preach, the woman is not to be the preacher. All right. Why is that? Well, it says Adam was created first, then Eve was created. 
All right. You say, I don't like that. Well, that's the way God made it, folks. I mean, that's just the way it is. Okay. Um, God has ordained that the man is the head. And that precedes the fall. Because some say, well, this whole thing about the man being over the woman was the result of the fall. No. Prior to the fall, who was the head of the first home? When they were innocent, when they had, before they had eaten the fruit, before they were cursed by sin, who was the head of that home? Adam was. He was his helpmate. Okay, they worked together, they complemented each other, but who did God hold responsible for the spiritual health of that family? It was Adam that was the responsible party. He was going to be held accountable. All right. So the bottom line of this is you got to understand the role of men and women. Although they are equal in spiritual privilege, they're not equal in terms of the role that they take on when it comes to the family or the church. They are not equal in that sense. All right. It doesn't mean that they can't be gifted to do many things. Women are gifted. And some people say, well, you know, what do you do if a woman's been given the gift of preaching and she's told she can't preach because she's a woman? Well, how would you answer that? Huh? She might have the gift of speaking and doing speaking for a crowd, doing very well. But that doesn't mean she takes the role of the pastor. But there are, are there avenues for her to teach. Oh, yeah, there are. There's a lot of avenues that she should be taking that she isn't. One of them is in Titus, where the young, older women are to teach the younger women. Look at the average church today. The younger women have nobody leading them. The older women are off doing whatever, and they're tea, cubs, tea clubs or whatever, and they're not teaching the younger women. There's a great role for the women to teach. But when Paul says when the church comes together in corporate worship, the men are to lead the church. They are the ones God holds responsible. And culturally, what was happening in that day, all right, is that there, just as in today society, there was an attack on the family unit. All right. We had a question about uh, women teaching. Um, what about women's conferences? They have stuff like that. Is, is, is teaching? I th what, what Paul, the way I understand Paul, is he's saying women are not to teach men in that context. If you have a woman's conference, we have a woman preaching or teaching the women. That's that's fine, Paul. You know, there's no problem with that. Now, how come these mega churches all got their wives sitting up in the pulpit? Because they're violating scripture. I'm sorry. If I were to go to um, what is it, um, Willow Creek, I couldn't join their church. Because to join their church, I would have to assent to being led by women elders, which I cannot do. I couldn't join this church. And one of the guys that has the nuttiest view on women in the church, Bill Zekian, Gilbert Bill Zekian is the one of the head theologians behind Bill Hybels and company. Bill Zekian has some really weird ideas on women. I read a paper by him. Somebody said, well, you know, by the way, it's called egalitarianism. I'll throw that word out. Egalitarianism. Um, it's 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 a movement. Egal. I can't pronounce it. Egalitarianism, which basically says in the church there's no distinction between men and women. They're all equal. You have women pastors, elders, whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't it, it doesn't matter. And someone asked Gilbert Bilzekian, so well, then why is it that Christ had twelve disciples, male disciples, didn't have any women? And his answer was, well, you know, Christ was just succumbing to the 
male chauvinistic mindset of the day, but really Christ thought that having women disciples would have been just fine. And it's like, don't tell, I don't, I can't answer that on tape, all right? Um, I don't know where he gets that. Um, I really don't, you know. The, the, the issue here is that there's a pressure today in the church from our society to erase gender distinctives. And when it comes to spiritual privilege, of course, there's no distinction. But when it comes to the role that, that, that the genders take on in, in, in family and in the church, there is a difference because God has ordained men as the head. That's the way God has ordained it. That's from the way God created man. If God had created man and woman at the exact same time, we'd have a different discussion. He didn't, right? He created woman after the man. He created the woman for man, not man for the woman. All right? And um, they complement one another. Okay? And what Paul is saying here is he's hitting his whole head covering because what had happened in the Corinthian church is that this, this um, women's lib type movement thing had gained traction in the church, and now all of a sudden you have these women thinking, well, in the Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm the same as my husband. There's no need for me to, you know, be a helpmeet or anything like that. I'm perfectly equal with him, and I can do my own thing. And I, you know, they're throwing off these, these, these uh, sort of trappings of, um, of what they would consider a very oppressive society. Now, understand, back then was wasn't an oppressive society for women. Yeah, it was. It was a lot worse than it is now. I mean, it was very oppressive. Um, in the Roman system, women didn't have rights. You know, men could divorce their wives really easy. Women couldn't divorce their husbands. I mean, it was very lopsided. That was not the way God had ordained it. That's just the way society was. And now you have in the church, all of a sudden, men and women who are saved and come to know the Lord and they're believers, and now all of a sudden they think, Wow, now that I'm a believer, I don't have to worry about these role distinctives anymore. I can just be my own person and do my own thing. And Paul is saying, no, you can't do that. Why is that? Because what has God designed the home to be? A place of stability, a place of structure, a place of order. And you ever notice how when the, in the Old Testament, what sins in the Old Testament? Give me some sins in the Old Testament that... Um, resulted in the death penalty. What are some sins that resulted in death penalty? Adultery. What does adultery attack? What does it destroy? Okay. What else? What's another one? Death penalty. What does that destroy? That's a no-brainer. What else is a death penalty? Idolatry, right? What does that destroy? Destroys, it destroys not only the, the church, but the governmental structure that God set up. Uh, under Israel, you know, going off into idolatry. I mean, you start looking at the death penalty sins, and all of them have to do with destroying or distorting or messing up one of these basic structures of society. All right? Why is that? Because that destroys a culture, destroys a society. It'll ruin it. And God holds it very seriously. And what had happened in Corinth is that the women, some of the women in the church, were trying to exercise their so-called freedom in Christ by basically throwing off, rebelling against 
the the proper, notice I said proper, that's a very important word, the proper male authority that God had set up in the church. There's proper male authority and there's improper male authority. We all would admit to that. But there's the proper male authority that God has put up in the church. He's ordained it. You look through the Bible, how many female prophetesses were there? There are five. And the only time that Deborah was called a prophetess, right? Why was she called a prophetess? Because she was told to tell somebody else. Right. Isaiah's wife was called a prophetess. In what sense was she a prophetess? She bore a son and gave him a name that had a prophetic significance. Um, Miriam was called a prophetess. Why was she called a prophetess? On one occasion, she sang a song having to do with something. And then there were two false prophetesses. Were there, was there any office of a prophetess in the Old Testament? No, there's no none of them. So in so in eight thousand years of recorded human history, you have five occurrences at any time of a woman being called a prophetess. In all five occurrences, there was not even a recurring office of a prophet. It's on one time, one occasion, one place. She said something or did something. Doesn't mean women are unimportant. That's not that's not the point. Ruth, you th would you'd say Ruth is pretty unimportant? No, she's in the line of David, right? So I mean, it's pretty important. Ruth was pretty important. Now, Esther was pretty important. Um, it's not that they did not have prominent roles in human history. But when it comes to the prophets, the prophetic office, it was male. When you come to the church, how many male disciples did you have? Twelve. Any female? None. In the early church, how many women pastors, elders were there? None. In fact, it says the elders to be the husband of one wife. Now, that's kind of tough if you're a woman, Right? Kind of tough to be the husband of one wife if you're a woman, for the elder, okay? Um, and in actually in Corinthians, in Second Corinthians, we're going to be talking about this. Who was deceived first, Adam or Eve? Who was spiritually deceived, Eve? That doesn't mean that every woman is gullible, right? But generally, generally, let me ask you a question. Generally, who's more gullible? Me. Generally, when it comes to spiritual things, who's more gullible? Yeah. No, women are. You look at the cults. Look at all. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you look at the cults. You look at the cults. All the cults. All the major cults were started by women. Believe it or not. What? Major cults. Really? Seventh Day Adventist was Ellen G. White. Um, uh, Christian Science. Mary Baker Glover Patterson Glover Fry Ford. She started that behind um, the the um, the Armstrong um, Worldwide Church of God was a woman Jehovah Witness. There had a woman behind that. And generally, women are more easily led astray. And, and, and there's more women in the church. So you say that. It's 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 the way God has wired them. It's it. I'm not saying every woman is gullible. I'm not saying that. But generally, the Bible would, it says, uh, these are they which um, creep in the houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins. Why did he say that? I mean, admittedly, both, both sexes are deceived. There's no doubt about it. But when it comes to spiritual things, God has designed the woman to be under the 
headship of a man. He's designed it that way. I know that's a very misogamistic thing to say in today's society, but that's that's generally that's the way God has designed it. You don't like that. <laughs> that's why there's more single women today than <laughs> God. That, that's the way God has designed it. That's why. Um, uh, who funds the uh, Looney Tunes on TBN? Rich um, widowers or rich widows? Poor widows. Poor widows. Not rich ones. I should say poor widows. They are they are too easily led. I'm telling you, they are too easily led. Yeah, they're too easily deceived. Uh, generally, and I'm just saying this is a general thing. That's all I'm saying. It's just a generalization. All right. But whether it's a generalization or not, God has ordained within the home, within the church, that men are to be the leaders. That's how God has wired them. I'm telling you right now, I'll be honest with you right now, it's been my observation over the years that with rare exception, women do not want to be in charge. No, we don't. They really don't. Unless it's Hillary. Um, you really don't want to be in charge. They just don't. A woman would much rather, she would much rather have a stable home and a husband, you know, that, that can provide for and, and be able to take care of the kids in the home. She's much happier there than going out and beating it out in the workplace. Generally, that's just, that's true. And that's how God is designed. And there's nothing wrong. That's the design that God has made. Both are needed. Both are complementary. All right. And what Paul is getting at here is what happened in the Corinthian church is that this egalitarian notion had crept in. And again, they're in the middle of this cultural cesspool in Corinth. And, you know, you go back and read some of the stuff in Corinth. You know, you had the women's lib movement back then where they, were, they had women um, teams that would go out and they would go pig hunting, you know, to, to kill pigs and act like men, you know, to, to be like, a, you know, to make them pass themselves off as men. Um, it was a very strong movement back then. And that leaked into the church. And what Paul is saying here, in verse 3, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, the head of Christ is God. Okay, and this comes back to this little Greek word here. This is one of the arguments. Kephale. Kephale. Kephale means head. Okay? It could also mean source. Right? Like the head of a river. The source of a river. Now, what the egalitarian people do is they come in here in this passage and say, look, you know, kephale, all kephale is saying source. So they're saying that the source of man is the woman. In, which, in, in what sense is the source of man the woman? You're born, right? Okay. And so what they want to do is they destroy this whole notion of headship they say it doesn't mean head in the sense of authority. Rather, it means head in the sense of source. All right? Because they want to get past this whole notion of man being the head. All right? Well, look what Paul says here. The head of every man is Christ. All right? What does it mean? Three. Three. The head of every man is Christ. How would you interpret that? That Christ is the source of the man? 
Christ is the head of the man. So, so in the, the framework of, of the church, who is over the man? Christ. Man is the head of the woman, and God, the Father, is the head of Christ within the church. Now, does that imply that Christ is less than God, the Father? We wouldn't say, that's heresy, right? To say that somehow Christ is less than the Father is a her heretical viewpoint. Christ is equal to the Father, but, here's the point, but within the church, within the redemptive plan of God, what role did Christ take upon himself? The servant. He wasn't forced to by the Father. He didn't lose a celestial arm wrestling match and get, get stuck being a sin bearer. He did. He it was it was a it was joyfully, um, voluntarily, um, an act of love by Christ who 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 with great joy took upon himself the role of the servant. Remember, Christ said, "The Father sent me." That doesn't mean that Christ and the Father are not. Christ is as eternally God as the Father is eternally God. But within the, the drama of redemption, within the plan of redemption, Christ placed himself voluntarily under the headship of, of the Father. Holy Spirit, who's he under? Who sent the Holy Spirit? Christ, right? Well, Christ and the Father, but Christ said, I will pray the Father and he will send you another comfort. So it was God the Father. All right. Does that mean the Spirit is less God than the Father or than Christ? No, they're they're equal. They're they're completely equal in all attributes and all characteristics and all aspects. But within the role of redemption, within the plan of God, each takes upon himself a role. Even so, within the church, there's a role that the genders take upon themselves. All right. It, it, it's, well, if you're single, if you're single, then then in the in the church, your head would be Christ. You know, yeah, yeah. If you're single, you know, this is talking about within the confines of you know the family and the home. But even in the church, the woman, a single woman in the church, is under the 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 authority and protection of the elders of the church. Um. And then he says here, every man praying and prophesying have his head covered, dishonors his head. Now, this comes in this whole head covering thing. One of the ways back then, even in East, Middle Eastern countries now, in what, what is one of the ways women show their, their role in society? They cover their heads. Well, walk over to Afghanistan with the, you know, the little shoat or whatever it is, the thing. Now that, that's nutsy, but, but the point is, within society, in India, within society, there is a, there is a cultural, there's, there, there's a cultural custom whereby women within a society show their role within that society. And in the Greek culture, in, in that culture, a woman showed her place in society by having her head covered. That showed that she was taking her proper role, proper place within that society. All right. And if she uncovered her head, that was basically her telling it, stuff it. I'm going to do my own thing. 
I'm going to rebel, so to speak. Um, I'm going to live the way I want. And culturally, in that culture, what was it that that showed a woman's uh, a, how did a woman show her acknowledgement of her God given role and place in society? She covered her head. And how did a man show his? He uncovered his head. Now, here's this is something you gotta gotta bean on this a little bit. You gotta think on this. Is the head covering the issue? No. What's the point? What's the point that Paul is making? What is the head covering point to? What's the big picture item? The role, and not only the role, but a, 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 a visible acknowledgement of that role, right? That's what it is. It, whether it's the head covering or whatever, that was just used in that culture. Now, how do you know that? How, how can I say, for example, what do you do with a woman who says, well, I got, when I come to church, I got to cover my head or I, I, I can't go into church. What, why would we call this a cultural thing and not a, not a, um, a universal principle? What gives us a right? Here's a question. What gives us a right to say this is cultural and 1 Timothy 2 is not cultural? Because that's the argument some make. They say, well, 1 Timothy 2, where it talks about women are to keep silence, that's a cultural thing. That was for Ephesus. It doesn't apply today. You know, you can. What, what gives us a right to make that distinctive? How can, how can we do that? What, what evidence do we have that there's a difference? First Timothy, doesn't he refer back to Genesis? First to creation in Genesis, all right? So, so that would imply before the fall, before there was anything, this relationship between the man and the woman existed, all right? Which is, which is big evidence. But how do I, how can I tell you that this is cultural? It talks about the church. It talks about the church. It talks about the church in Corinth. In Corinth. In Corinth, so. But how can I how can I say I, that doesn't apply for me today? Because you have to go back and and, and find out um, if you look back and find and study to see what what it what it's all about. You go back and culturally find out what is the issue, why is he saying this, and if you do that, you can make the case that this is a cultural issue. That what was happening is the Corinthian women in the, in the church were displaying their rebellion to their God-given role by assuming that they, you know, in the church there is no differences, by keep by uncovering their head. By by breaking the cultural, the cultural image of their role. You know, in those days, put it this way, in those days if a man and a woman went out, a man and his wife went out, she would have her head covered to show her her role, her submissive role in life of her husband. If she went out with her head uncovered, she was telling everybody, giving them a message of, you know, of rebellion almost. It was it was a cultural stigma for her to do that. Just like getting shaved. What was the what's the cultural stigma of being shaved? Prostitute. Prostitute, right? They were shaved, right? Because they were had their hair cut off as a symbol of shame. I remember when the Nazis left Paris, they went all they got all the women that collaborated with the Nazis and they'd take them out and shave their heads. 
you know, to a shame for collaborating with the Nazis. Um, it was an act of shame. And all Paul is saying is, listen, within the church, there are roles that God has ordained. And you need to be careful within the church and within society to make sure that you are, you are, um, broadcasting the message by the way you dress and the way you look and the way you act that you understand that is your role. And that you're not violating God's ordained establishment of roles. So in the church, when a, when, when a woman is teaching Sunday school, she should be teaching the women. No man should be in her Sunday school class. I'm not yes. talking about boys. Yes. We can teach boys. And that's from First Timothy. Yes. Yes. So a woman should teach women, mm -hmm. and the men should teach the men. And yeah, and the man can come over and teach the woman. Well, in, in a mixed group, yes. Yes. And that's within the corporate assembly. Don't you know how many churches it's falling way by the wayside? Well, I'm just, I, look, you know, all I'm saying is you got to deal with the text. That's what I'm saying. Know, Whatever church how, is. How come churches don't follow the rules? Because, because they have how fallen. Go by the Bible? Because, because quite honestly, I think a lot of them have fallen into the cultural pressures of the day. So we'll fix one thing. I mean, they'll go by one thing in the Bible, but when it comes down to yeah. something like this. I mean, I, I want to ask Bill Hybels, why in the world do you have as part of your church constitution at Willow Creek women elders? And he'll give you a bunch of mumbo jumbo about how this stuff doesn't apply. And he got it from Gilbert Bilzekian, who's got some, you know, crazy well, ideas. Well, Kim Coates, wife, uh, she's a pastor now. Who? Uh, uh, what's her name? Gloria. She's a pastor. Gloria Copeland. Well, Gloria Copeland's a false prophet. Then that's the first thing she is. So that doesn't count. She doesn't count. All right. She's a false prophet, along with her husband, Ken, who's a double false prophet. Um, yeah. The, the point is, you. all I'm saying is this, as a student of Scripture, we're all students of Scripture, right? As a student of Scripture, wherever you land, you got to make all the verses fit. I have a problem with, you know, uh, how how the churches are, are, are not following the Scripture. That's right. I, I, I mean, I'm by my own church. That's right. The women teach, and, and we're all in the same class. Yeah. 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 I heard um, there was a picture where um, when, when uh, was it Mary, one of them, when they came to the tomb and they seen Jesus, mm -hmm. and he told them, "Woman, go tell it." Yeah. They use that as a you know, as a defense you know, for. Uh, Mary Magdalene was not preaching a sermon to the disciples. She was sharing a piece of information. Right. All right. That's not that doesn't fall in. Nor does a woman giving a testimony. You know, if you're, in a, if you're in a church and you've got a woman who's serving on the mission field and she comes back and gives a testimony of what God is doing on the mission field, that's not her preaching the word. That's her sharing of testimony. That's covered. All right. We're talking about, yes, I believe, I, I believe that the scripture teaches that women are not to take that role. Doesn't mean they're stupid, doesn't mean they're dumb, it doesn't mean they can't. But I'll tell you what happens. Here's here's my big beef. The problem is women do that and they don't do what God did tell them to do, which is to teach the younger women. They don't they're not doing that. They're not doing that. Really they're not. No, they're not doing that. They're not doing it. 
And if you look at Titus, what Paul tells the older women, teach the younger women to love their husbands, love their children, be chaste keepers at home, so that the word of God is what? Not blasphemed. And what does it mean to blaspheme the word of God? It means when a, when a society looks at your home, they should say, that's what I want my home to be like. I mean, anybody watch your little house on the prairie in here? Yeah. All right, which home do you want to be in, the Olsons or the Ingalls? <laughs> Think about it. Not too long, right? Why is that? Who's the head of the Ingalls home? Who's the head of the Olsons? The battle axe. All right. Followed closely by Nellie. All right. I mean, right there it is. Yeah, but then, but then you look at, but stop and think about it. You ask the average, if you would ask the average person watching Little House on the Prairie, 99% of them want to be in the Ingalls household. Why is that? Because there's a natural, God-given bent structure to that that somehow is right. Now, did, did does Charles beat up Cat Carolyn and 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 boss her around and treat her? No. And I, I, you know, some women say, well, you don't know what kind of jerk I'm married to. You know, and I kind of, look, I'm just saying this is what the Bible says. And I go back to Ephesians. If the man loves his wife as Christ loves the church, a woman is going to joyfully submit to his leadership because she knows that he wants her best interest at heart. And there's, she's not going to be worrying about that because she knows he loves her. He's going to take care of her. That's God's ordained way of doing things. It works. It, that's the way it works best. You know, and we've done everything but muck it up. We've, we just don't like the way God does it. We've got to figure there's a better way to do this. No, we've done, we've mucked it up. We, we, we just don't want to do it the way God tells us to do it. You know, that's not surprising, isn't the end days as far as the apostasy of the end? Yeah, yeah. And all Paul is doing here, and we—I can't spend more time on this because we'd be here all night. But the whole point that Paul is saying is that within the Corinthian church, a man and a woman should exhibit attitudes and behaviors and external characteristics, being in this case the head covering, that denotes that they have a proper understanding and submission to the role that God's given them. And in that culture, a woman to have her head uncovered was an indication of rebellion against her husband and against society. And then Paul says, you know, even nature teaches that a man it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Now I remember you know, growing up saying, well, that meant that uh, it had to be over your ears. You, know, you had to have it cut over your ears. Let's not talk about the length of hair, folks. Okay? Let's, let's think about this. What's, what, what does Paul say when he says, even nature teaches it is a shame for a man to have long hair? What's, he, what's it saying? Think of nature and hair and men and women. No. <laughs> think, think. Think generally, generally. Think of nature and hair and men and women. Men go bald. Why do men go bald, right? Do you see women go bald? Yeah. Rarely. 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 All right. 
All Paul is saying is even nature has, when it comes to the hair, and he's not trying to give the length of hair. And all, he's just saying even nature says there's a difference between men and women. Technically, I can look and say that's a man, that's a woman, unless I go to Oberlin, in which case it's up for grabs, you know. But I, I, I joke with it because Steve, there are some people I look at all and I say, is that a man or a woman? I don't know. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's neither. I don't. There's some you can't tell. But but the whole the God is against the unisex notion. God wants a man to look like a man, a woman to look like a woman. In the way they dress, you know. I think now that does that mean uh, women can't wear slacks to church? There's some churches say no. If you wear slacks, you, you got to wear a dress. If you don't wear, we'll throw you out. All right. No. What, what's the big point there? The big point is when I look at someone, I should be able to tell from their dress. I should be able to identify pretty clearly man or woman. Why? Because that's God's ordained role. When you try to rub out that 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 role distinction or that that gender distinction. You're striking a blow against God's created plan, which is a bad thing. And that's all Paul is trying to get at here. So in the Corinthian church, he's saying a woman should come in with her head covered. Why? Because it shows culturally their understanding of their submission, their role submission to their husband. Generally, husbands should not. Why? Because that. That is a shame. If they, they act like a woman, they're not to act like a woman. They're to act like a man. A woman is to act like a woman. A man is to act like a man. They're to take their unique roles because that's what gives structure and cohesion and, and gives strength to the family and to the church. And when you violate that, you're bringing confusion. That's head coverings. Does, did it answer any questions? We'd be here all night if we dug into this deeper. Um, if you look at my theopenword.org website, I got a paper on um, the role of women in the church. A big, long paper I did. Yeah. Um, it talks about this. Okay. Um, now, now, in giving these instructions, verse 17, now he's talking about the Lord's Supper. I do not praise you since you come together... Not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. He comes back to this whole division thing, fractions, right? Now, in the body of Christ, should there be divisions over non-essential issues? No. It's pettiness. For there must also be fractions among you that those who are approved may not be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper for an eating... Each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, another is drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. What's going on? Well, they had this wonderful thing called the Lord's Supper. What was the Lord's Supper? Communion. Communion. What was it to depict? Death, death, burial, and resurrection. How was it done? What was the way... The Lord's Supper was done in those days. Well, after the meal, after they ate, what did they do? What did Christ do? After the Passover meal, how did he do it? How, how did he institute it? Bread. And how did he do that? What did he take? He broke it off, passed the bread, and what did they do? They each broke a piece off, passed it to the next guy. And then what did he do with the cup? 
and he took a sip and then he passed on. They took a sip, passed on to all around the table. All right. That's the way it was done. What was that to depict? His death, the body was broken, the cup, the blood of the new covenant. We'll find that in a few verses here. That was the way it's done. What did the Corinthians done? Well, they, you know, they, they would come together and in that church they had wealthy believers and they had people who are not so wealthy and they'd all have the apocalypse, but they would all hang together. So you had one crowd over there that had all this delicious food and they were drunk. You had another group over here that were starving. They were hungry. They had not eaten because they didn't have, and they were not part of that group. That was not part. There were divisions. They were fractured along socioeconomic lines. That's right. And what, and that, and what's obvious is there, what's interesting is a lot of Pentecostal churches say, well, we want to be just like Corinth was, you know, with all the gifts and all that. And say, I don't think you want to be like Corinth. <laughs> they were the worst church to be like. And, and Paul's saying, I don't, I'm not praising you in this. You've got some that are drunk. You have others that are, that are, that are hungry. And, and you violated what the Lord's Supper was all about. And in the, in the early church, they had this thing called the love feast. It was a giant potluck where people would bring food and everybody would share. That was what it was for. It was to share. Consider going to a potluck where you've got the pastor section with all the good food. And then you've got the other section over here where, you know, you got all the leftovers and the crumbs. And you're not, you know, if you're in one, you're not allowed to be in the other. That would really help a church, wouldn't it? Kind of like the hierarchy of the seating at a party where the in some case, not I don't think that's that's happening back then. Yeah, and there's nothing there, you know. But what's happening here is Paul is saying, I've heard that what's happening there is this has turned into this debauched thing. You've got people that are drunk, you've got other people that, and so of course when they stopped to partake of the Lord's Supper, you've got the drunks over there that don't know what's going on. You've got the people over here that are hungry. You've it's a mess. And Paul is saying, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, same night was betrayed, took bread. This is after they ate, remember? They ate the Passover supper. And then he took, there's a loaf there, the, the unleavened loaf. And he picked it up and he broke it. And he passed along. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup after supper, after they ate, saying, this cup is the new test of my blood. This do... As often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. This is one of the two ordinances of the church, baptism and communion. Why is why did God why did Christ institute communion? What was the purpose of it? Commemorate. To remember. We need that, don't we, as human beings? And what what, what Christ did is he instituted an a, a the, the took the Passover, modified it, became the Lord's Supper, and it was a time for the church to come together and remember Christ's sacrifice, his death, his burial, and resurrection. And it was it was done through the significance of the breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup, of the glass of juice. All right. Now let me ask you a question: How many of your churches do it that way? And the loaf, right? The loaf said, yeah. I thought they said now that the law said we used to have glasses. So now the law says that we have to have throw away the throwaway cup. Mm -hmm. We cannot use those glasses anymore. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. Yeah. It was it was interesting. At Open Door, we we you know we have the you know the little plastic cups and the and the, and the, um, the little wafer bread that you took a little piece. One time, the pastor had a loaf of bread that he actually passed down and he broke a piece off. You ought to see the Baptists lose their cookies on that. You know, that's just well, we don't do baptism that I mean communion that way. That's not the way to do it. Well, that's the way they did it. And here's what I'm trying to get at. What's the significance of communion? The elements or what they depict? Why did Christ use the loaf of bread? That, that's what was on the table. That's what was left on the table, right? And of course, the wine is something you all had. The point is, we, we need to understand the significance of communion is the commemoration of the Lord's death. Does that mean um, you can't use, we use grape juice instead of wine. Is that a violation? Well, no. Probably a good idea, you know, for all the drunks in the, you know, in the congregation. You know, I don't want to give them wine. You know, maybe you have grapes. Maybe you, you know, yeah. But there, what 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 this is is what Paul's beating on him here, saying one of the problems that you have there is you've got people that are drunk, you've got other people that are starving, and you've you've taken the Lord's Supper, which is a very serious thing, to commemorate His death and His breaking of His body and His blood. And you've turned it into something that half the people don't, they're not even cognizant of what they're doing. And not only that, you know, but but you you drink it in an unworthy manner. What's the idea of an unworthy manner? You drink it without a proper recognition of what it is you're depicting. Yeah, here's the point. Here's the point. God says, when you pray to me, when you take communion, I want your brain engaged. I want you to think about what it is you're doing. It's not in the mechanics. Understand, understand this. It's not as much in the mechanics. It's in where are, where's your head? Are you thinking about what you're doing? Have you, in this case, have you examined yourself? What is the communion? It's a time to sit down and examine and reflect on what Christ has done on the cross. That's what it's for. And it's a time to confess your sins. And it's a time to, to think about what he did for us. It's not a time to be looking around and, you know, looking at the watch and, you know, am I going to get home in time to watch my show? You know, whatever. It's to focus in and think about what Christ has done. And what they had done is this, is this was the end of a drunken feast where they were, in fact, let me ask a question now. Did, was there ever a case in, in biblical history where God killed a couple of drunks in worship? No. No, who was it? Ordination day. Nadab and Abihu, remember them? Sons of Aaron. What happened? Yeah, you know what? You know what, what? What actually happened is they were celebrating their ordination. If you read that the, the 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 context, they were celebrating their ordination, and they were a little bit loopy when they did their thing, and they 
you know, weren't paying attention and they just, you know, did it their own way. They, they offered strange fire. The idea of strange fires, they didn't do what God told them to do. And God says, you know, I'm not going to put up with that. You killed them to make a point. And remember later on, what did, what did God say? From here on out, a priest is not allowed to do what? Drink. So the reason they were killed is because they were drunk, celebrating their ordination, and they offered strange fire. And God says, you know, I'm not going to put up with that. And that's what Paul's saying here. For this reason, there are some that are what? Weak and sick and some are dead. Now, let me ask you a question. You know, are you going to die if you don't get baptized the right way? No. But if you eat and drink unworthily or profanely at the Lord's Supper or treat it as a common thing or not serious or just goof off, God might kill you. Because it's a serious thing. And Paul is ripping on this church saying, you guys, what is wrong with you people? If you want to eat and drink, where do, where do you do that? You do it at home. Because you're not allowed, you can't do it in the church here. Evidently, you aren't, you're not able to do it in the church. So if you want to eat and drink, do it at home. When you come together to commemorate the Lord's Supper, bring solemnity to it. It's a serious time of meditation, of thinking about what you're doing. Because if you don't, God might just kill you. He might just kill you. Alan, uh, commentary, this is the first written account of the Lord's Supper. They were, Corinthians predated the Gospels. I was surprised to read that. They said that this was written before any of the Gospels, and I, I don't understand why it's all been written before the Gospels. Well, John was written in the you know the 80s AD. So this is written. Corinth was written around. Um, I'm trying to remember here. It's written right in 52ish, 54ish time frame. Mid 50s basically is when it was written. So um, Luke was written after this. Luke was written 60 to 62. Mark was probably written after this. John was definitely written after this. And we're not sure about Matthew, but most likely he might have been written after this. So this was the first written account. But that doesn't mean that they didn't know about it. Oh, I know. I just, yeah. I'm surprised that Paul, the, the apostle of the Gentiles, actually predated the gospel. Yeah. The gospel were probably written later. Depending on where you put Matthew and Mark. And they, they don't know for sure. They, I... I think Mark is the first Corinthians. You know. But uh, I think he talked about John McCarthy talking about the first Corinthians. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But but the event, the 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 um, communion they're talking about, the church knew and practiced. That was one of the two ordinances. That and baptism were the two ordinances. Baptism commemorating my identification with Christ. Communion identifying His death, burial, and resurrection. On the cross, and the breaking of the the body. And the word "broken" isn't really accurate. That they said that the, the manuscripts that maybe this is a misreading the manuscript that Christ's body wasn't really broken for us; it was given for us. It was given for us. Um, it was broken in the sense of not breaking apart, but he did die. 
you can't take the metaphor too far. You know, I mean, did it, was any of Christ's bones broken? Well, no, that his bones weren't broken, but his body was given for us. And by eating that, we are identifying ourselves with his death. All right. And again, we could we could spend weeks talking about consubstantiation and transubstantiation and all that other kind of stuff. Um, I believe that communion is a picture. All right. It's not to be taken literally. That that physically turns into the body and blood of Christ, as Catholicism would tell you. In fact, they would tell you if you don't believe that, you're damned. You know, that's the big thing in Catholicism. It actually becomes the body and blood. And then Lutheranism says it's sort of like it, but it's really not. They're sort of halfway there. Um, pardon? You're not allowed to chew the host. Yeah. That's consubstantiation. Real blood. It, it's not. It's. It, they don't say it's transformed, but it's symbolically, it's the same as. And they do some whiz bangery with words to to take a step away from Catholicism. It actually says, you know, if I would cut you open after you took communion, I would see a piece of flesh there, that's Christ's body, physical body. Um, that's not what I believe the Scripture teaches. It's a metaphor. It's it's a picture. Because as Christ gave the first communion, was he there? Did he draw blood out of him and have him take a sip? No, it's not what he's doing. He, it's, a, it's a picture. Well, but being as a Catholic, they you know, make the first communion, they do teach a high respect for it. No, yeah. I mean, they, they, to, to some extent, they got the, the idea that they're, it's a serious thing. Folks, all, God, God wants you to engage your mind. He doesn't want you to just go through the mechanical motions. I mean, that's the big thing here. Look at prayer. Remember prayer in, in uh, Matthew 6. When you pray, don't be like the Pharisees, for, you know, they stand at the corner of the streets, and then they have their vain repetitions, you know. But when you pray, go in your closet and engage your mind. Think about what you're telling, what you're saying to me. Don't just repeat words and phrases, you know. And when it comes to communion, God wants you to engage your mind. He wants you to think about what you're saying or what you're doing. He wants you to stop. You shouldn't be, you know, when you're taking communion, your head should be bowed. You should be, you know, meditating on what he did and 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 and, and checking your life over. Examine yourselves here. Look at your life. You know, Lord, is there is there unrepentant sin that I've, I'm hiding from you that I I'm not dealing with? And, uh, also, you know, also my observation, uh, people need to forget. Why did Christ give pa Why did God give them Passover? Just like the Shema, the Deuteronomy chapter five. Yeah, the Shema. You know, always in the in the post, in the door, the you inside. Always remember me. Yeah. So the and, means the principle is always forget. And why did He give them the Passover? To commemorate that. Every year they commemorate it. Every year it stopped them. Stop. Now wait a minute. Now where did we come from? Why are we here? We need that. As human beings, we need that because we just get, you know, sort of complacent about it. And and the Lord's Supper is one event periodically when you come together, whenever it's served, whether it's monthly or weekly or whatever, where you stop and you focus in on what Christ has done. Yeah. Well, that's my question because, you know, as often as you do that, 
Yeah, it doesn't. Now, if, if you want, if, if you had to do it weekly, what would you have said? Well, in that, in those church, in, in that day when the church came together, they had communion every every time they came together. Does that mean you have to do it every time? No. Well, no, because if he did, what would have Paul have said? He would say do it every time you meet, you got to do this. He does, doesn't he? No, he says when. He doesn't say when you happen to meet. It's fine. And that's one of the arguments, you know, there, there's, okay, that's the way the early church did. Is that the way I have to do it? Um, and I would make the argument that communion should be regular. It should be monthly or biweekly or whatever it is you do. It doesn't have to be every week, but it should be often enough that you keep that remembrance, you know, what Christ did fresh in your mind. Doesn't matter. Paul doesn't say it has to be morning, noon, or evening. He just says, you know, whenever you observe it. So the significance of time doesn't matter no. as long as you do it. Yeah. And this is interesting. Just, just generally, look at how many denominations exist out there. And if you look at the distinctives, a lot of them have to do with the way you baptize people and the way you take communion. Look how many different denominations you got. You dunk them while I sprinkle them. You know, you wash feet, but I don't wash feet. You know, and you got all these different, you know, all this stuff out there. And what happens, here's, here's, I get on my soapbox at five or ten minutes. And then we'll get 12 after the break. The, the problem we have is we get so hung up as, you know, as, as, as people in the church and that, we sometimes get so hung up on the mechanics, we miss the meaning and we do that. Why is it that you're, what is the meaning of your baptism? Why are you baptized? You're not allowed to answer it. Why are you baptized? No. That's not what it is. The baptism? No. You said what is it? It's not. To show your it's not to depict Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It's the outwardly appearance. When you get baptized, it's just an outwardly appearance that you confess that you're saved. It's your identity with Christ. You're making a public proclamation that I am identifying myself with this church, the message of this church. You know, the mission of this church. Why was Christ baptized? To depict his death, burial, and resurrection? He's a real man. Why was he baptized by John? What was he what was he saying in his baptism by John? I'm identifying John is right. I'm identifying myself with the message of John the Baptist, which is what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is in hand. The king is here. I'm I'm affirming and identifying myself with that message, which is a correct message. It had nothing to do with his death, burial, and resurrection. That's something we put on it. Also, he substituted. Yeah. What Christ was doing, Christ was identifying. Yeah. What Christ was doing in his baptism is Christ was linking in a public way his ministry to that of John the Baptist. It was not two separate ministries. It was the one and the same ministry. What was John preaching? Repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ was affirming the message of John, identifying himself with that message. And then when Christ went on after the rejection and we have this, you know, his death, it's, it's not two different messages. It's the same message. It's the same thing. But baptism in the New Testament, if you look at it outside of all the trappings that we stuck on it, the rite of baptism in the, in the time of New Testament was a, a rite. It was a common thing that you did when you wanted to identify yourself with a group or a movement. When you went down to the Dead Sea, the Essene community down by the Dead Sea that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, you wanted to become part of that community. You had to go through all of these, whatever, this, this membership stuff. The last thing you did is they baptized you after which you were then considered by them and by society an official member of their group. Well, this was a custom. It was a custom. It wouldn't be a big deal about um, sprinkling. I don't believe there is, personally. Now, I, please understand, if I was the pastor of a church, immersion, I think, is, is a good, I think that's the best picture. I think that depicts it best. That's the way Christ was, he was immersed. John immersed people, didn't sprinkle them. But the significance of baptism is not in the mechanics. The significance is in what are you saying? And there's, there's societies today. I don't know what it's like in Korea, but you go over to Nepal, you can be a Christian all day long. This day you're baptized, you're, you're excommunicated from society. It's illegal, and I think it's Bhutan or Nepal, it's illegal to baptize someone. That's a capital offense. You can be a Christian all day long. They could care less. The day you're baptized, why? Because that is a, that is a, you're making a public break with what you were and you're now identifying yourself with this. What was the message of, what was John baptizing people for? When he was baptizing people, what was the significance of his baptism? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? No, he didn't know that, did he? Did he know about that? No. John didn't know about that. That's not at all what it was depicting. What it was depicting is when you were baptized by John, you were making a public proclamation to the society, to your friends, to your family. I am repenting. I believe what he says. I'm identifying with his message. I'm buying into that. And that's the significance of baptism. It's my public proclamation, whatever mechanic is, is done, but I'm making a public proclamation. But what happens is that we get so hung up on the mechanics that the significance is lost. The significance of why you're doing it is lost. And we're, we're more worried about, well, were you baptized in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit? Or are you baptized in the name of God? One's valid, the other isn't. And then you go to the Landmark Baptist Church, and they say, your baptism is only valid if you've been baptized by someone who is validly baptized, by someone who is validly baptized, by someone who is validly baptized, by, and then about 40 other, by John the Baptist. You know, you got to trace your way back to them. And you get somebody baptize you who's not qualified to baptize you, your baptism doesn't count. And we get so, we get lost in the mechanics, we forget why, now, now, why were we baptized in the first place? And that's the same thing with the Lord's Supper. We get so hung up on the mechanics. So say, is it little cups of grape juice or is it little cups of Coca-Cola or is it real wine or is it non-alcoholic grape juice or is it, you know, leavened bread or little crackers or loaf of bread or we get hung up on all of that and we miss the significance. Why are you doing it? 
And I'm just thinking that, you know, I believe firmly that God wants you to engage your mind. Why are you doing this? The modern baptism, just so, I don't know if this is just semantic, is it to identify with the message of Christ or is it identified with Christ? It's to identify with him, his message, his message being what? The death, burial, resurrection. I believe immersion is a good picture of that, but that's not that's not what, why God chose that. That was picked up by the early church because the Jews, you wanted to become a Jew. And in Christ's day, if you were a Gentile, you want to become a Jew. You go to all your training. You do all of that stuff. You get your circumcision, whatever. The last thing they would do is they'd baptize you. And once you were baptized, now you're a Jew. Until then, you weren't. Same, same comparison. The Jewish, Jewish, Jewish is circumcised. The new, the way. Well, now, now there's a difference there. Now, some would say in the covenantal viewpoint that that um, baptism has replaced circumcision. I don't believe that. All right, they would say that, and that's what R.C. Sproul would say. He says, baptism, why they baptize infants is like the Jews circumcise their babies. We baptize babies as a sign of the covenant. They, they make that comparison, but I don't think that's a valid comparison. I, I don't believe that's what baptism is. Some comment, comment, yeah. commentary like that, and then also, also is a John John Baptist uh, baptism or Christ the disciples the baptism is different. They were two different messages, but they were. What, what I mean, John Baptist the baptism is repentance baptism. John was yeah. John was saying baptism is confession, newborn. Yeah, but but in both cases, what you're doing. That's the actual. Yeah, but in both cases, what you're making is you're making a public proclamation to your family, to your friends, to society that you are that you are going to be you are identifying with with Christ, with John. Now, John didn't have the full gospel. He didn't know about the death, burial, resurrection. He didn't understand that. Right. Purpose is repentance. Right. Yeah, you put your repenting. Yeah, because I'm identifying, I'm agreeing. Yes, yes. But is a disciple's baptism different? The disciples baptize, you're identifying with the message of Christ. Right. With the gospel. The messages are different. But but in both cases, the act of the right of baptism is identification and public proclamation. And in many societies today, and back then it was, once you were baptized, that was that was when you were really, I mean, you know, you, you could be a, a, a Christian and the day you're baptized, now you're thrown out of the house. Because until then, it wasn't really official. Now it's official. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.